1: Hello, and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African-American Studies, where writers and scholars of African-American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and today I have the opportunity to talk with James D. Univer. He's one of the authors of a provocative new book entitled, A Theory of African-American Offending, Race, Racism, and Crime, published by Rutledge in 2011. The second author on the book is Sean L. Gabadon. This book builds on what the famous social scientist W.B. Du Bois asserted more than a 100 years ago, that any theory of African-American offending must be grounded in the real conditions of what it means to be black living in America. Today, African-American men account for little more than 6% of the U.S. population, yet They account for nearly 60% of the armed robbery arrests in the United States. What does this glaring disparity mean? And what can account for it? James Univer and Sean L. Gabadon for the first time have constructed a theory of African-American offending that helps to explain these and other statistics. Let's listen in to what James Univer has to say about his new book.
2: Hello, Professor Univer. Good afternoon. Today, we are talking to Professor James D. Univer about his new book, A Theory of African-American Offending, Race, Racism, and Crime, published by uh, Routledge Press in 2011. Professor Univer is the first author on this book and is co-authored with Sean L. Gabadon, who is a distinguished professor of criminal justice in the School of Public Affairs at Penn State Harrisburg. Professor Univer, we're very delighted to have you on the program today, and we'd like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Right. I'm a full professor at the University of South Florida, Sarasota, Manatee, on the west coast of Florida, and uh, I previously taught at Mississippi State, and another university called Radford before I came here and I got my PhD from Duke University and I also got a couple degrees from the University of Florida and I'm principally a sociologist who studies uh, patterns of crime, theories of crime and race relations. Nice.
2: Can you tell us how you and Professor Gabadon came to write this book, A Theory of African-American Offending, Race, Racism, and Crime? Uh,
0: Yes. Uh, Essentially, the two of us came together um, out of frustration, to be honest with you. Uh, I've been teaching criminology for 30 years and have always been um, aware of the tremendous disparities African Americans and whites in their level of particularly violent crime and I've waited 30 years for someone to develop a, a theory that I believe speaks to race relations in the United States and how they impact both blacks and whites and over those 30 years there hasn't been a single theory in my estimation, that has uh, included within it the everyday experiences of what it means to be black in America, and Sean felt the same as I, as my co-author, and we were equally frustrated by the fact that there are uh, a large, well, relatively large number of theories of criminal behavior, and I believe, not entirely coincidentally, all written by white men, that argue that there is not a need for a specific theory on why African-Americans are, for example, more likely to engage in violent crime. And these, these other theories essentially argue that the same causes uh, of behavior uh, generalize to both whites and blacks. So, for example, that a theory may argue that poverty is a cause of crime, regardless of your white, if you're white or black, and that the reason why blacks engage in uh, more violent crime, at least according to the official statistics, is because they encounter more poverty. Well, we don't dispute that. I mean, that seems to be relatively common sense to us. But despite all that, we argue that there are everyday experiences. That African-Americans encounter that whites and other races and other ethnicities including Hispanics do not encounter Mm -hmm. and it's in these other experiences that the richness of the black experience in a racist society uh, bears fruit for explaining their offending so Sean and I met uh, during a criminology meeting a national meeting and out of this frustration uh, and also it can't be ignored that DuBose uh, argued over a hundred years ago for a theory of black offending to be grounded in the everyday experiences of being black in a racist society to be formulated but for whatever reason and we don't think it's necessarily intentional that theory has never been fully developed Mm -hmm. and so essentially Uh, Sean and I set out to create this theory and Hopefully fill in what we believe a tremendous void in the literature in trying to understand why people engage in crime
2: Mm -hmm. I'm going to skip to a a certain point in um, in the text Um, It's not it's not following exactly the the chapter outline uh, here, but I, I think that listeners will Want to know uh, your perspective on, on this, and you and you talk about it in the book, uh, you and, and Professor Gabadon, about the o- Obama effect, or um, what does having uh, a um, president of African descent, the first one now, uh, how does that affect, or can affect, or will um, African American offending?
0: Right, right. Well, he and I actually published uh, an article in one of the top journals in our field on the Obama effect, and what that research showed is that one of the one of the arguments that we make in the book is that one of the the a salient factor I think that if you wish um, unifies and consolidates uh, what it means to be black in America is their interactions with uh, white-dominated institutions. And unfortunately, one of the institutions that uh, African Americans probably disproportionately encounter in the United States is the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And historically, the criminal justice system has, I would say, most favorably a checkered past in dealing with african-americans it, and if you wish uh, to be more polemic one could almost argue that in some states particularly here in the south the criminal justice system um, either benignly or overtly participated in terror what i would consider terrorist acts against uh... black uh... black citizens i e they participated in the lynching, uh, the thousands of African-Americans that were lynched in in the South uh, after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And so one of the issues is, well, it is the election of, uh, of Obama, which is historical and is not to be denied. And there is some potential that could have some positive benefits. But what we found is that Nearly all African Americans believe that the police are essential, or in the criminal justice system as a whole, are racist. Now, whether or not they are or not is not the debate, but certainly there are enough uh, individual acts in the history of the criminal justice system implicates it in and of itself. However, what we found in our own research in a national survey of African Americans. Is that that belief is entrenched?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: In fact, we argue that it is a, uh, like I said, a crystallizing component of what we believe to be the shared worldview of African Americans. That is a, I mean, the way I, that I think about this is that if if you walk into a room and you're African American and there's other African Americans in there, it's almost as, it's almost, if you wish, um, uh, an understated. Uh, common sense reality that's shared by the blacks in that room whether they're Harvard professors or uh, a hip-hop person living in in the Bronx, that at some point or another that they're going to be hassled by the police. Mm-hmm. And that could be whether they are individually or what we call vicariously. Certainly I would say that the arrest of Gates uh uh put all african-americans on notice that there isn't anything that necessarily insulates them from that possibility even a degree from harvard and absolutely national recognition
3: mm-hmm.
0: and so that what our own research showed in terms of the Obama effect is that african-americans essentially uh, nearly universally agreed that Obama would have little to no effect on altering their perceptions of the criminal justice system mm. now they did report that there was the likelihood that their life situation would improve in other areas for example in terms of getting uh, more political representatives and and potentially even in their own career advancement at least they believe that Obama would have a better effect on them than they would than he would on whites but the reality is that almost all the blacks that were included in the survey essentially believe that Obama will have no effect on what we believe to be one of the primary causes of black offending and that is their vicarious or personal experiences with criminal justice and justices.
2: Some of the critics um, would argue, and you actually um, build in this uh, uh, response into the text, and I'd like for you to talk about how you respond to it, but some critics might say that the problem. One of the problems in African-American offending is, is that very perception and that if African-Americans themselves would um, eradicate the perception that the uh, criminal justice system is um, uh, racist on one hand or perhaps um, uh, unfairly prejudicial um, in another, that uh, the situation would, would, would be better. That in fact, having that perspective in some ways creates the, 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 um, the problem.
0: Well, I, I think that that I I find that argument to be a cup that's half empty,
3: mm-hmm.
0: in the sense that uh, what we argue in the book is that the worldview that is essentially the basic foundation of the book, uh, and I would most simplistically state that this worldview essentially. Uh, includes the belief that race and racism matters in the lives of African-Americans. And and that's something that most whites have a hard problem identifying with. But I I would not argue that this is a self-perpetuating, if you wish, a uh, culture of poverty argument that once this belief is triggered that it will remain forever as, as an endogenous part of the black American belief system. There, there are just too many instances of police um, use of excessive force that disproportionately has always historically targeted African Americans. For them, just to simply walk away and somehow or another, uh, somehow or another, have some epiphany and say, regardless of what's happening to us, regardless of the disproportionate, the driving while black, the uh, shopping while black. Uh, regardless of the disproportionate contact that we have with, uh, with the police that we, have, we somehow or another uh, are going to be in a complete denial about the reality of what it means to be black in the United States and somehow then um, create this epiphany where I'm going to purge myself of the reality of the life that I'm experiencing I I don't see that as a viable argument because the reality is that the racist acts that are directed towards blacks, whether that's a a person at a wedding getting shot or an, uh, an African descent black person living in New York getting sodomized by a broom handle in a police station having his colon perforated by it, these kinds of acts, some could argue are isolated But the reality is that they resonate because of the historical legacy of how the criminal justice system essentially condoned these institutionalized acts of racism, including lynchings. It is just virtually a half-baked argument to argue that the fault of all this belief resides within the black community when the belief itself is being continually reinforced by the very acts of the police departments themselves, Mm -hmm. i.e., and most symbolically and most probably most relevant, the beer summit with a black cop and Gates and the president of the United States.
2: (laughs) Right. Go on. Tell us a little bit about that, your interpretation.
0: Well, my, uh, you know, I, I, uh, Ogletree, I believe, is Charles Ogletree was Mm -hmm. Attorney that represented Gates in uh, the Gates Fair and he just recently published a book that we uh, I read and we reference in our own book. And the and essentially, uh, I mean, I it's kind of somewhat um, a class structured book in the sense that Ogletree interviewed numerous uh, African Americans, essentially at Harvard and. Uh, blacks at are in prominent positions from attorney generals to um provosts at universities
3: mm-hmm. he
0: didn't obviously he uh, you know his class structure because he didn't go into you know downtown Boston or into Harlem and interviewed young African Americans, which is probably more relevant but in a, in terms of offending but what was what he discovered in his interviews is that the, the experience that gates had was almost nearly. Universal for all uh successful blacks mm-hmm. that is uh so many uh every person and it was just endless it was one anecdotal story after another it was uh almost depressing by the time you finished reading the book that every single one of the uh these uh these stories in this book described in, uh an encounter with uh, a Harvard student walking across the commons uh, late at night, getting coffee to continue uh, the rigorous studies that are required to graduate from Harvard, and sure enough, getting uh, uh, stopped, frisked, uh, under the pretense that, you know, somebody got robbed and you're a black male and you, therefore, are a suspect. And for me, to be honest with you, it wasn't necessarily the universal experience that was profound in terms of my understanding of black offending but rather that these isolated events in these individuals lives uh, are never forgotten
3: Mm -hmm.
0: and in the way that I personally think about that it's almost like when people say you know uh, it's okay to hit your kids but if you think about it nearly every adult whether they're 60, 70, 50, or 40, can remember every, unless it's excessive, every single time that they were hit,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and so that these these singular events um, aren't out of context, because they're a nearly universal experience that African Americans share with one another. That, like I said, that when these happen in a the neighborhood, they resonate, uh, they vibrate, they increase in intensity. And as we all know, every civil dis- disturbance that's happened in the United States, this swizzle stick that stirred the drink was a, a criminal justice injustice. And so that what was profound for me was not the universal experience of being, if you wish, harassed by the police because of race, but rather the fact that these are grown men, women that are highly successful, but could... Um, Uh, repeat with glaring detail exactly what happened to them and the emotional consequences that they experienced when it was happening to them i.e. these are um, life-defining events Mm -hmm.
2: what is the relationship between the um, high percentage of uh, contact of african-americans with uh, the criminal justice system in some way and uh, your theory of African-American offending
0: well uh, we borrowed heavily uh, from a fellow named Sherman uh, though we uh, modified it somewhat and we also uh, built our part of our theory on a fellow named Tyler's work on what's called procedural justice and so that you know the, the question that arises initially is why do people obey the law and the argument is is that people obey laws that they feel are legitimate so for example an awful lot of people uh, are known to uh, uh, light up a joint now and then and what allows them to violate a law that could jeopardize their career that could put them in jail that has put you know thousands upon thousands of people in jail is that they simply don't believe that that law has legitimacy so the more whether it's white black brown or yellow the more that people perceive that the law is baseless in terms of its legitimacy the less likely they feel compelled to obey that law and so that also follows through for the criminal justice system so that if you don't believe in the legitimacy of the law that you feel its major representatives of the law are in fact targeting you or or um, are trying to get you to do something that you feel is, um, is racist is based on racist behavior uh, that that kinda undermines the power of the law uh, in terms of constraining your behavior and then Tyler emphasizes what he calls procedural justice and once again it doesn't matter what race or ethnicity you are it basically argues that if If you, in the process of encountering the criminal justice system, feel as if you've been treated unfairly, regardless of the outcome, so that you know people aren't complaining necessarily that they got arrested per se as much as they're complaining about how they were treated while they were being arrested
3: mm-hmm.
0: and so what we argue in our book is that how, do, how does the experience of encountering what we call criminal justice and justice translate into higher rates of offending is that it does so uh, on an emotive way uh, beyond it undermining the legitimacy of the law, it also fosters within the individual the likelihood that they'll respond with defiance,
3: mm-hmm. with
0: anger, with mm-hmm. hostility. And in fact, one of the more interesting studies I read is that one of the things that causes people to want to retaliate historically has always been the feeling that they've been insulted, publicly uh, shamed. So if you could think back to all these movies that we've watched over, you know, over our lifetimes, whether it was in the South or, you know, White Nights, uh, it always started in some way or another with some kind of insult. You know, the the, the proverbial uh, slap across the cheek with the glove.
3: Mm-hmm. And then
0: these two white guys walk ten steps from one another and then turn around and shoot one another. And so that what universally triggers hostility, uh, anger, uh, defiance, is the perception of being insulted. And there, so what we essentially argue in our research is that when uh, people experience these criminal justice injustices, uh, let's say, for example, you know, you're out with a group of friends and the next thing you know, you're getting pulled over and next thing you know, you're spread eagle on the hood of the car and your wife's in the car watching you. That um, it, that experience generates a lot of animosity. Mm-hmm. It generates a lot of anger, and particularly we would argue in terms of black men, and we could talk about this uh, on down the interview if you wish. But here you are being publicly ashamed uh, and feeling powerless. And the question that we ask is, what do you do with those emotions?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And the rea- what we argue is that those emotions coupled with the belief that the criminal justice system has no legitimacy in terms of telling you what to do, and the laws themselves seem to be rather vacuous because they're written principally, if you wish, and at least historically have been written from a white male perspective, that... You have a volatile situation, uh, uh, if you wish, uh, uh, an almost an explosive situation where it becomes much easier for you to take that anger and end up translating that into uh, drug use and or the usually the the precipitating emotion that uh, occurs immediately before most offending is some degree of anger. Mm -hmm. So here you have all this uh, bottled-up anger uh, uh, with this rumination, uh, and what we say is that culminates in um, the greater likelihood of violence, and that violence is translated into higher rates of offending. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And unfortunately, a lot of that offending remains insular within the black community itself.
2: Why is that? Does the theory address that?
0: not particularly but I mean I could answer that from my own you know perspective that uh, you know here in Sarasota Florida it's a relatively affluent community and there are communities that are gated and there's communities that are extremely affluent that have a gate but no um, person at the gate and uh, and we have a if you wish a uh, minor ghetto here called Newtown but the bottom line is, if if a black male, 18 years old, drove out to a community which I'll call Bird Key here in Sarasota and went past that gate, I could absolutely guarantee you that uh, that person would be under surveillance.
3: Mm-hmm. And it
0: doesn't make a whole lot of sense to drive your car into an affluent white community and end up absolutely getting busted when the history of policing in depleted resource neighborhoods is one where most blacks want greater police presence. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I don't think it's, you know, what, it, and in New York City, what are they going to do? Steal TV out in Westchester County and then get on the subway and bring it back on the subway? Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, you know, the proximity, uh, most offending occurs relatively close to where people live. Because they know they feel safer in terms of getting away with it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You, uh, you, 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 and and when I say you in reference to the book is both you and your co-author um, Professor Gabadon say right. that this book is for uh, you know a range of constituents, um, uh, people who are interested in African American offending crime rates et cetera, race relations and race relations, and I'm wondering. Uh, From my own experience with talking about race relations, what uh, mainstream, the mainstream readership uh, might perceive this book to be about and how white readers might respond to it.
0: Well, that's interesting. I I would hope that our book gives voice. Let's just talk about, uh, since I'm a university professor, let's just talk about the classroom with blacks and whites and I have used uh, the book one time so it's a very small end but uh, let's anecdotally generalize from that Uh, I I there's no doubt that I believe and I'm optimistic on this and it's new it's newly out but I hope um, I seriously hope that this book gives voice to the black students at our universities uh, I, I think, uh, for example, there's been an explosion of female criminologists. When I started in criminology, there was you could go to a national meeting and there would be 10% women. Now it's almost 50%. And criminology is kind of a male-oriented, if you wish. And we believe that the reason why that's occurred is because of feminist uh, theories of crime gave voice to women so that when a student comes in, all of a sudden they're getting something that speaks to them in terms of their everyday experiences. Mm -hmm. And that has been, in my estimation, that has been largely uh, 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 not available to black students. All they've been taught in criminology courses is the theories that have been nearly universally created by white men, uh, relatively older white men, i.e. in the 40s, 50s, 60s. And so that I hope that uh, our book gives voice to uh, the black students who are in the sociology, criminology, psychology, race relations, uh, Afro-centric courses, and it it allows them to feel empowered to speak about issues that they previously have felt, uh, probably because of the stereotyping in the room, Uh, hesitant to bring forcefully or assertively out. On the other hand, the white students, um, it's going to be a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that when they first start reading, and this has been my own personal experience, uh, among some students, there's going to be an immediate defensive, a sense of defensiveness that arises. But hopefully the power of the book in terms of the Uh, I'm going to say this, the endless citing of uh, um, well-researched studies that over the length of the time that it takes to teach and cover all the chapters in the book, that the evidence becomes so overwhelming that even the most potentially racist white students are going to have to start to somewhat capitulate from their perspective and acknowledge that the reality of being black is quite different than the reality of being white in the United States. Mm-hmm. You cite early on in the book,
2: um, as you're uh, explaining what the book is going to be about, um, uh, W. B. Du Bois's "Philadelphia: The Philadelphia Negro" as a kind of um, historical springboard for um, the theory. Uh, most of our most of our readers are uh, and listeners. Most of the listeners here are familiar with Du Bois's seminal texts, which you also cite uh, The souls of black folks which sort of theorizes african-american experience in America But could you tell us how you all build on the philadelphia negro?
0: Well, I mean it it, once again as I as I said when we started out it's you know, it's It's I don't know how else to say this I mean you can hear it in the tone of my voice that, that there's a level of frustration that that uh, comes out of um, the f- how, if you wish, um, DuBose's contribution in understanding that, for example, the color line in and of itself, uh, i.e., that created segregated neighborhoods forcefully, uh, is a cause of crime. Uh, that's a simple statement. But that simple statement that, um, if you wish, uh, I don't think that's necessarily um a, uh an Einstein statement, but Dubos was one of the only folk that would that was making those statements so here you here you have white people purposely segregating with n- nothing but intention uh African Americans and then creating neighborhoods that were completely if not well nearly completely depleted from any potential resource that would allow them for self-improvement and this is what DuBose was pointing out and yet that insight is not part of the lore of the folklore if you wish of criminology
3: hmm mm-hmm.
0: and so and I that's how I, I ended started the interview by saying we are frustrated um, you know, and I'll speak for you know. I, I'm white. I'm sure most of your listeners would identify my tone of voice as potentially being white. I it 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 was frustrating for me to sit on the sidelines. And I grew up in the '60s and during the civil rights disturbances, et cetera. And race has always been a paramount um, value-oriented uh, uh, attitude within who I am as a person. And I'm sitting on the sidelines, and to be honest with you, I was frustrated that no black author had had forcefully presented a theory of crime. And it wasn't so that, once again, here's a 100 years ago, making and declaring these insights that are, in our estimation, still true today, and certainly would explain the uh, historical evolution of the disparities in crime that we now are experiencing but for whatever reason that insight has not been full-blown developed into a theory of african-american offending by either whites or african-americans up until essentially our book. so uh, it's frustrating for us it's it's not that we were necessarily uh com- you know we felt more compelled to write the book than we did uh, you know out of uh, some sort of personal self-interest
3: mhm
2: i, I want to talk specifically about uh some of the things that are in each of your um six chapters and okay. a little bit about the epilogue because um that helps us the epilogue is a little bit about um uh, application um, but and we' t- we've touched on some of these things i'm going to raise, but feel free to elaborate on them so okay. in, in chapter two um there's a the discussion that is specifically about dealing with um in, uh, the specificity of an African American worldview or perspective. Yes. Why is that important to uh, understand a specific, unique worldview to blacks in America?
0: You well, know, that's an interesting. I, I. I'm sitting at a lunch with uh, a couple of white fellows who golf, and I was talking about that I was writing this book, and they're they're highly conservative folk. And uh, it, you know, I said, well, gee, do we need a theory that? that is specifically about African-Americans and their experiences and how they relate to offending. No, no, no. The same thing causes blacks that, uh, and whites to engage in crime. I said, well, is it possible for blacks and whites to experience the same event but interpret it differently? And reluctantly, with a great deal of reluctancy, they agreed to that point. And uh, you know, I, I'm going to date myself, but I just want to show you uh, or illustrate, uh, and this is in the book, what I mean by that: uh, the O.J. trial. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Are you old enough for all that? I am, and actually,
2: <laughs> when I read that in the book, that's early. Um, and when I read that, I remember my own experience. Uh, well, good. I,
0: I, if we could play back and forth on this, for, <laughs> just for just for a moment. I'm white and I'm sitting there and uh, you know, it was like the, like a twilight zone movie, the world stopped, you know, everybody stopped dead in the United States. Mm -hmm. And when the verdict was being announced, I I don't, I can't imagine anybody. I'm sure every barbershop, the scissors stopped, you know, I can't imagine anybody actually working when that verdict was read and it, you know, as being white, uh, you could you know make any assumption you want but essentially I believe that OJ was guilty and then when the jury announced that he was innocent I, I write in the book that white America's jaw collectively dropped mm-hmm. I mean we were as whites uh, absolutely stunned or in Bush's terms in shock and awe mm-hmm. And then, if you remember this, and I'm, you know, I'd love to hear your comment on this. The camera panned, and I think it might have been at Georgetown, or not Georgetown, at um, I forget which university. Um, at it, it panned, and there was a group of blacks with the cameras rolling, and the verdict was announced, and they simultaneously. The only other time I had that was when NC State won the NCAA. You, they simultaneously, I'm sure there wasn't a conscious thought in their mind. It was spontaneous. They universally jumped out of their chairs <laughs> in, in complete and total. Uh, celib- they just went absolutely uh, blissful in celebration. <laughs> and white America, as with Katrina, if you wish, we were absolutely, we were stunned, number one, that OJ got off. And then when we saw blacks celebrating,
3: mm-hmm. an
0: obvious what we thought was an obvious guy who killed two people, they were celebrating. We we were I, shock and awe doesn't even capture the the differences between white and black America in that one moment. Mm
3: hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And that, and you know, I'm going to tell you my experience here. All right, I'd love to hear this. It was my first year teaching high school in 1995. Um, and I was teaching at Mount Vernon, Illinois at Mount Vernon high school. And the principal told us that we were not to watch the verdict. Oh my God. On the, on the television. And all of us had, uh, um, televisions in our classrooms. Um, and, uh, I defied the, the principal's decision and, and in my class is a predominantly, um, white school um, in rural Illinois and I told the class we're going to watch the verdict but there should be no displays of emotion regardless of what the verdict turns out to be
0: don't tell me you started jumping up and down
2: I started jumping up and down. I ran around the classroom. I was screaming. I I I had no absolute control at all. But
0: man, those students must have their jaws must. You might have to scrape them off the floor.
2: And that's why when I was when I opened when I started reading the opening of the chapter because you begin chapter two with that um that anecdote. It explained to me what my students' reactions was, because I, 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 to this day, well, until I read this opening um, anecdote, uh, could not understand why they uh, had well, – what it seemed to me that they were containing their emotion, but I think the emotion was just sheer shock.
0: I would say shock and awe. Are yeah. you kidding? They were – it was – then when they saw you jumping <laughs> up and down, they didn't know – their whole world was turned upside down. They didn't, Are you t- You know, the, the old term, they didn't know how to grok that situation. <laughs> exactly. But I want to tell you
2: why I was jumping up and down, even though I mean, it was spontaneous. I'll tell, you, Go I'll, ahead. I'll tell you. Okay.
0: I'll tell you, and you can tell me whether I'm right, and maybe this will validate the book, that you weren't necessarily celebrating the fact that uh, this potential person got off, right? And you may even somewhat believe that he had done it. But what you were celebrating was, number one, a black man getting the same justice that whites routinely get, and Johnny Cochran, a black lawyer, uh, if he was doing it. Right. Yeah. Right. And so it was, a, it was an equal celebration of here's this black lawyer, Johnny Cochran, outperforming, busting uh, everybody up, Doing, you know, here's a black man achieving a victory that even white America couldn't even accomplish for one of their own in all likelihood, Mm -hmm. and he do, and him doing it in a racist setting, and in addition to everything else, finally a black guy getting what white people have always gotten.
2: Exactly.
0: To to
2: the letter. Right. To the letter. Exactly. And I think that's significant, although most people. Um or I think some other people you know um disagree and they have they have problems with that. I think they stop at uh stop at they don't want to interrogate the the racial history involved in our that's reaction that, you
0: know that's what that's the point of you know when we we've already had this conversation that i I believe that what you have that I don't have if you wish even though it's assumed in different ways is that i i believe and i've had this conversation with Sean is that that a core component. I'm going to I'm going to say this is that a core component of being black and having a the, uh, a black identity. It is the is that core belief that race and racism matter and and the criminal justice system, which the OJ trial was all about, is something that unites you. You can go into a room. It's like white guys can talk about sports, and that's you know that's non uh, ideological, if you wish. You could probably go into a room of every, any black and bring up the Gates thing and instantly feel a sense of solidarity with that person, mm-hmm. and that's what I mean by having a worldview. It's that sense of solidarity of you know something that is in common that that defines what it is to being black in a racist society, and that O.J. event to me crystallized exactly what the book is about and saying that that worldview it, it has evolved it, it didn't come out of thin air and it's not the responsibilities of blacks to overturn it when it's continually being reaffirmed in the everyday microaggressions the everyday racism of their lives what what gives them any evidence that that race or racism doesn't matter right and so um, you know that 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 sense of, of what it means to be black, though I mean, there's many variegated forms of this, but what I argue, uh, and I think Sean pretty much shares that belief with me, is that sense that you know the criminal justice system. And I'm not targeting them because uh, you know other forms of racism have been shown to be just as deleterious in terms of their consequences of criminal justice and justices, but just that that sense of that. I I feel vulnerable and i feel powerless and as a man who wants to feel powerless and who wants to feel vulnerable
2: hmm I want to put my next question in the context of chapters three and four okay uh, and talk about uh, although this discussion the one we just uh, had and uh, even much of what you've already said shows that um, uh, you know, it's it's in terms of class uh, in a in a in the African American racial existence that um, you know uh, crime or offending uh, is not uh, it, it it's a it's a sort of universal
0: experience, but there are but very no, – I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily argue. I, I you know the rates of crime are going to differ somewhat uh, across class. Within the black community,
2: will it will it differ so much that it that it's zero in a certain class?
0: Um, well, that zero is never achievable, right? I mean, the, so you, that's, you, that's, right. that's white people. I mean, yeah. look at all we got all mad off <laughs> right. all these other guys. You know, that's all uh, I meant
2: by so. I I just meant that no one's exempt from either contact. Um, and you even mentioned earlier vicarious. Uh, that's right. Uh, relationship. So that's all I meant by u- universal.
0: Oh, yeah, well, here, let me kind of interject then, uh, because this is one of the questions that I'm sure the readers may already be formulating, or the listeners is we argue that this worldview is nearly universally shared by all blacks. Mm-hmm. That is, that race and racism matter in their lives. So then the the question that we pose throughout the book and I think this is what gives the book real substance because that argument isn't particularly tremendously insightful even though it's been hugely ignored Mm
3: -hmm.
0: then the question becomes much more complex and that is if almost all blacks believe that their skin color matters then why don't all blacks equally have the same likelihood of offending and I think that that's what you're basically asking. Yeah,
2: that's it. That's it. It's just you're just yeah. much more articulate with it.
0: And I wrote the book. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <funnily>. <laughs> I, I think that that's a you know that that is a fundamental question. And do you want me to speak on that?
2: Please. That is the question.
0: Okay. Um, the it, it's uh, you know I'm going to give you Reader's Digest versions on that. Um, let's just begin with. Um, what we argue in the book is that,
3: <clears throat>
0: you know, the the experience of being discriminated against, and the research is unequivocal. It has, if I'm going to say this, it's probably not overblown. Disastrous consequences for blacks. Uh, you die younger than I. Uh, you suffer from hypertension. Uh, you have all these health related uh, diseases, if you wish, that um, are A result of the constant awareness that your skin color matters so that when you walk into a room you feel the presence of what we talk about in the book when we do nearly a whole chapter on the negative stereotypes the criminal black man right um, you know that you may be less intelligent uh, and there's all sorts of data to suggest that the vast majority of whites hold these opinions and you walk into a room, even as a professor, uh, and whether it's in your classroom, and you may you may be experiencing or perceiving a degree of skepticism, for example, within your students. That how are you as a black man, even with a PhD, how are you going – and it's almost like prove it to me where I walk in and the assumption is that I'm an authority.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: and And that has – debilitating consequences, uh, especially when that's a daily experience in someone's life. That's called stress. But the reality of the situation is, is that people differ in their encounters with racial discrimination and negative stereotypes. In fact, in the book, we argue that the experience of racial discrimination should be measured the same way that people measure child abuse. For example, age of onset, who was your first experiences with racial discrimination? Was it with people who you respected? Was it people like a teacher that essentially belittled you in the classroom in front of your peers? And then, so it's age of onset, it's frequency, it's duration, it's who's involved in the actual and I'm gonna use this word abuse itself
3: Mm -hmm.
0: and what we argue is that the experiences of racial discrimination are not uniformly experienced and so for example one of the more difficult sections for me to write was well gee why don't black women have the same rates of crime as black men Mm -hmm. if they also share the world view that their race matters in a racist society yes and the answer to that question though I hope that other researchers and listeners out there um, uh, are taken to task and develop this more fully I'm gonna I I don't have this quite written in the book but I'm going to tell you uh, anecdotally why I think that I'll give you an example why uh, black men and fend more than black women even if they equally believe that race is meaningful in today's society okay so you and uh, a friend of yours uh, are you're walking down the street and let's say that you're not dressed you're dressed uh, you know kind of um, baggy jeans you're, you're dressed more than casual and there's a white woman walking down the sidewalk uh, what reaction does she have to you, okay? Uh, Does she tighten her hold on the purse? Uh, Does she try not to engage in eye contact? Does she uh, slow down her gait or does she increase her gait, okay? Now two black women, you know, also not dressed to the nines, are walking down the sidewalk. How does the white woman react? I would imagine she looks at them to see whether or not she knows them, or whether or not they're friendly, or you know, as if they were just two other white women walking down. So, what I'm trying to say is that our society has constructed stereotypes that, unfortunately, have overly burdened the black man with all sorts of ne- negative depictions, mm-hmm. and these negative depictions are crushing in their consequences, where where the same where whites have not constructed nearly, if you wish, as damaging stereotypes of African American women. Mm-hmm. And consequently, as a result of those stereotypes that are pervasive among whites and whites hold more power than do African Americans, African American men are continually put into positions where they're where they're fully aware that this what we call the criminal black man stereotype is probably being held by everybody in that room Mm -hmm. and it's the burden is to prove them otherwise on you And but with black women there are stereotypes but I don't believe that whites hold those nearly as universal and the depth of those stereotypes are not as um, deep as they are in terms of the convictions that whites have about black men and consequently black women are not encountering the same level the same intensity the same frequency and the same duration of being continuously bombarded with everyday racism
2: Mm -hmm. what about the class question so you just spoke on the gender question what about class
0: we really don't deal with the issue of class uh you know we we talk about for example that that black even successful blacks in their place of residence, if you look at two if you look at a black and white equal in terms of their income, blacks are still less likely to live in the same quality of neighborhood uh, and it's strictly and only well i shouldn't say strictly but it's largely because of race and we do have a little paragraph on white collar crime mm-hmm. and what we argue there, which we haven't talked about and i'll just weave this in a cor- Uh, I would say that a large component, I don't know, 50 to 60 percent, 50 percent of our book is essentially built around this, what we believe to be an ironic dilemma. And that is that, you know, the the general theories of crime, if you wish, these white theories of crime essentially argue that the more people become bonded to conventional institutions, the less likely they are to engage in crime. Mm -hmm. So that means that You know, whether you're white or black, the more that you're involved in your education, you know, do your homework and feel positive about your school experiences, Mm -hmm. the less likely you are to engage in crime. Right. We don't we don't counter that argument. We Mm -hmm. fundamentally believe upon it. But that theory basically argues that the reason why blacks and whites uh, are less likely to engage or be able to build bonds with the schools, for example, is because their parents raised them either to be more accepting of authority and more emphasized education. Mm-hmm. But once again, we, we argue that blacks and whites experiences in schools are not universally the same. Right. And so what we essentially argue is that blacks are continually confronted with what I believe is a, uh, an admirable ability among uh, the vast majority of whites is to build <laughs> bonds with institutions that they feel are racist
3: mm-hmm.
0: it's almost like asking someone to love someone who's hitting them mm-hmm. and then saying well why don't you go ahead and and why are why are you why are you divorcing that person why are you leaving that person ie why are you dropping out of school you good for nothing why are you you know and then somehow or another uh, um, uh, blame the person for making the decision to leave school and drop out but what we're saying is, wait a second, you're asking African-Americans to build uh, strong bonds with institutions that they feel are treating them unfairly. And we sh- we have uh, all sorts of data to show that school suspensions, uh, expulsions, uh, fights, et cetera, are disproportionately impacting African-Americans, mostly African-American boys. So here you are walking into a classroom that you know is is contaminated with negative stereotypes of who you are, and then you perhaps have it uh, a school that has teachers that have racist beliefs, and you know a large part of our work is built upon the the work of um, of the stereotype threat literature
3: mm-hmm.
0: which essentially argues uh, that African Americans underperform in rooms that are uh, where where they experience a stereotype threat so that if you have a black and white in a standardized taking a standardized test that they don't believe is a standardized test they're going to perform equally well but as soon as the teacher triggers the here's a standardized test and could say well and instantly then the whites are saying okay I I do well on this test and the African Americans are saying well you know we don't do as well and as soon as those two thoughts pervade, each group's binds. The research shows it actually gives a, 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 a boost to white performance, and it undermines black performance. Yeah. So here you have all this happening in this classroom where you have a, a teacher uh, uh, never calling on you, or when when called on, it kind of is more humiliating to you. Um, and and then you are, are triggering all these stereotype threats. You have the 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 peer the peer group, where the blacks sit at one coffee, you know one cafeteria table, the whites are at another there's hardly any intermingling all this is going on in the classroom, and somehow or another, we as whites, if you wish, believe that you should not only succeed in that environment but excel even more so than i do
3: mhm
2: but the, and this is the gold. In the book for me this particular uh aspect that you just uh talked about but i want to posit um and i wrote in several places in the margin that that ideology that perspective is not just held or imposed by whites but other african americans particularly um who identify as middle class And some of the uh, neoconservative speakers, uh, like Shelby Steele and John McWhorter, would argue the same thing. In other words, they would argue that identifying with uh, traditionally white institutions uh, provides a um, safe house or um, a mode of um, integrating into American society that would not. Uh, continue to perpetuate some of the um, negativities that African Americans experience.
0: Right, is As the assumption once again? This is like almost your leading in question. It, I is there's no doubt. I, like I said, black, white doesn't matter. Yellow, brown. The more you identify with these institutions, the less likely you are to engage in crime and go on to be, if you wish, relatively more successful. There's no doubt. About, I mean, the, the research right. is relatively. Uh, unequivocal on that. But right. once again, Steele and, and those folks, it, the, what they're ignoring is the reality of what it means to be black in a racist society. The microaggressions,
3: mm-hmm.
0: the everyday experiences of racism. So the research, for example, shows that stereotype threats are are reduced if if the teachers themselves are aware of them. If the institutions, whether it's a place of work or whether it's a school, whether it's a university, high school or elementary school, has a assertive, a a forceful, a well thought out and sustained program that emphasizes the celebration of diversity. Mm hmm. So that there, there's, if, if sure, I would say that if if the world is perfect and there is no uh, everyday experiences of racism, if the black students aren't going to the corner store and having someone follow them and then have to go home and have to deal with that and have parents that are unwilling to help them through that experience, sure, I mean, in the perfect world, these guys are absolutely clear. They're clear-minded, but once again, if they forcefully speak about the very issues that we believe give rise to the very behavior we talk about, and that's offending, I would absolutely be willing to say that they're on to something. But to only present the cup half full mm-hmm. and not talk about the everyday experiences of being black in a racist society and how they impact the ability of blacks, particularly black boys, black men, in a, in identifying with a, with an institution that essentially thinks they're hoods, criminals, uh, gangsters, it is absolutely... Uh, to me, uh, relatively incredulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you read from the book? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna read one section on the um, uh, out of our conclusion. Now, let me see if I can get this up for you. All right, let's see. You ready? Yep. Okay, I'm gonna read about four paragraphs. Our theory of African-American offending centers its analysis on the lived experiences of African-Americans in a conflicted, racially stratified society. We argue that African-Americans have a unique worldview that has been and continues to be shaped by experiences with criminal justice injustices, racial discrimination, and pejorative stereotypes. Our theory contends that these experiences have deleterious consequences that are related to offending. They cause African-Americans to experience negative emotions that are related to offending, including anger, hostility, aggression, defiance, and depression. Together, these debilitating feelings exhaust their emotional capital, leaving them vulnerable to engaging in impulsive behaviors, which is a chief factor relating to offending. Experiencing racial injustices also causes African-Americans to offend because they undermine their capacity to build strong bonds with conventional, white-dominated institutions. That is, African-Americans are confronted with the paradoxical task of building strong bonds with quote, conventional, unquote, white-dominated institutions that many of them perceive to be racist, such as the criminal justice system. Our theory additionally stipulates that African-American parents, which we really haven't talked about yet, can attenuate the deleterious consequences of racial injustices. Indeed the research shows that shows the brilliance of African-American parents as some reframe these injustices as challenges that their children must overcome. This resiliency is reflected in the fact that only a minority of African-Americans offend even those residing in areas purposely constructed to racially subordinate blacks, that is urban ghettos. Thus the data indicate that the vast majority of African-Americans rise to the challenge the rage that flows from their racial subordination is transformed into a healthy resistance. It provides them with the energy, the agency, that they have channeled into dismantling many of the institutionalized forms of their repression, such as the legacies of Jim Crow.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Our theory further recognizes that the U.S. remains a conflicted, racially stratified society. Consequently, African Americans confronted with the reality that they will encounter criminal justice injustices, racial discrimination and the consequences of being interously stereotyped these debilitating racial injustices place burdens on the black family african-american parents are confronted with having to deal with their own anger defiance rage depression as they are assaulted by these injustices while simultaneously preparing their children so that they not falter from their own awareness of how their race and racism will negatively impact their lives Put more simply, it is emotionally exhausting to continually to have to fend off the deleterious consequences of racial injustices. Mm -hmm. Consequently, a minority of African-American parents fail to fully provide their children with the skills that they need to fend off their own encounters with racial injustices. Therefore, the cumulative consequences of these experiences place African-American youth, especially African-American males, at risk of offending. Those who offend do so because they do not have the emotional capital to successfully negotiate their encounter with racial injustices. As a result, their offending will be fueled by their overwhelming emotions of anger, depression, and their inability to bond with the institutions that have discriminated against them because they are are black. In the end, our theory posits that the American dilemma of race and racism that DuBose pointed out over 100 years ago will not be resolved, especially as they are related to black offending until African Americans can live their daily lives free from the experience and perception of being racially subjugated Mm
2: -hmm. Thank you for that And we have time for a few more questions, and I wanted
0: to um,
2: Tell you because you mentioned in your reading uh, You know that we hadn't talked uh, a lot about parenting or or at all and that was the most troubling part of the book for me Um, the uh, um, idea that is raised that parents um, can uh, effectively and I might and and substantially um, intervene in 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 this in this circumstance of African-American offending I'm not saying that they can't but what I marked in the margins and was hesitant to raise here but I'll, I'll raise it since it's it's featured in what you read is that it's it seems to be one of the more um, one of the more explicit claims that you make about what can be done to intervene, um, and and it and the other constituents um, are not are sort of left off the hook. Um, in other words, if to the extent that racism is still a factor, a reality, and not just a perception. Right. And there are people who perpetuate um, uh, racist actions, um, structural racism, et cetera. Right. I don't see. I see those issues addressed in the book, but I don't see those people and how and what they can do differently um, addressed as explicitly as parents are addressed. It seems to me that the parents, African American parents, um, are uh, asked to take on an even greater burden. Than they already bear in
3: right. this
2: in the situation. I felt
0: that I felt that when I was writing it. The but the dilemma that once again that we were confronted with is the vast majority of blacks don't engage in violent crime. They don't go out and rob people. They don't murder. They they're not selling crack. They're law abiding people trying to make a living in a tough time right now. And, um, why, why do the vast majority of blacks, if they share the worldview that race and racism matters, not offend? Like I said earlier, one could, one reason could be that they simply encounter less, uh, less overt forms or subtle forms of discrimination. And I do believe that to be true. But the reality is that, well, what else could explain why some do and some don't? And, the data actually show that 55% the majority of African Americans believe that parenting has something to do with the rate of offending among black men and so this isn't um, something that we're imposing but rather just reflecting upon what the black community itself believes and you know what a large part of our theory is based on well if the vast vast majority of blacks don't offend why don't they offend And we believe that not only do do they probably encounter less of of the deleterious consequences of being black in a racist society, but that their parents have been instrumental in preparing them for what it means to be black in a racist society. And what do we mean by that? The vast majority, about 80% of African Americans report that they engage in or have been racially socialized by their parents it's only a very small minority of parents that don't talk about what it means to be black to their children and so what we argue is that how people respond to, if you wish this systemic uh, racism that has always existed within our society is that some folk are better prepared to fend off the consequences than others, and where do they get that capacity? And we essentially argue that that capacity is largely, though not entirely, because we also believe the black church plays a principal role, especially in terms of uh, explaining black men versus black women in their rates of offending. That somewhere or another, the, this this ability to be resilient and and to trans Translate the anger and the hostility into constructive avenues of dismantling the racism you know, the civil rights movement um the, the continual battle that's going on every day in every neighborhood uh, In every community to f- forward the advancement of african-americans we're, we're, we're why do some of those folks have that capacity and not others and I think we would be um, not Uh, basing our argument on the data if we excluded the fact that there are what we what the literature refers to as racial socialization experiences Mm -hmm. so that if you for example the research though the research is you know nearly equivocal on this if you feel good about being black whether that's privately or in public and in addition to that you've been taught how to respond to these microaggressions, the everyday racism that you experience. How do you cope with that experience? In the failure of having the ability to effectively cope with that racism and the, the feelings of shame, anger, depression, you know, what do you end up doing with that? Well we argue that for lots of black men, young black men, that anger once again gets translated into violent activity. But then again, another way that people end up dealing with emotions that they, they can't really cope with is they medicate those, right? And they end up, you know, putting a needle in their arm and injecting it with Oxycontin or heroin or whatever else it may be. And then you're into the street culture and you're so – but that's the minority of folk. But the vast majority of folk that encounter those acts of discrimination, for example – they are able to, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you that the most uh, the most successful way to deal, well, there's a variety of ways, but some of the research says that the most successful way to deal with these encounters if, is if your parents, for example, said, okay, I know that that's how whites are going to treat you. And that's unfair, but I'll tell you what, you, excuse me, you take down on a, as a challenge and you... Don't allow that to interfere with your ability to do well in that school. In fact, you could even show them that they're wrong. Don't give in to them. Be proud of who you are. Be proud that you're black. Celebrate your blackness. Right? Have a good feeling of black pride. And being taught that from a very early age Uh, we argue in our book is one of the key factors that differentiates those who offend and those who don't and and we go on to say that you know there's different components of racial socialization one of which is cultural socialization so that parents that celebrate blackness you know uh, the holidays associated with being black you maybe have uh, you know do you know give books about DuBose and, and show that there's a richness in culture there have a sense of being black and being proud about, and rather than devaluing being black, actually valuing and celebrating the fact that you're black. But there's also what, there's one component of racial socialization that's called uh, mistrust of whites. And we believe that that is a a powerful uh, indicator of the likelihood of offending. And we also argue, for example, that that Ability to um, have parents to essentially overemphasize the mistrust of whites, you know, the white blue eyed devil, right? And that what look what they've done to you. And essentially what you have is a parent who has 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 what which I say uh, been debilitated by, you know, 50 years of, of being devalued because of their black being put down because of the black not getting any good jobs. Uh, being um, treated poorly at work and they take all that and they bring it home
3: mm-hmm.
0: right and all they end up doing is teaching their kids essentially that you know the whites are, are dis- something that you should distrust now here you have a kid that and we believe that that likelihood increases with the degree to which the parents themselves have positive interactions with whites so that if you live in a racially concentrated, uh, resource depleted neighborhood where essentially the only whites that are in there are up to no good and the parents have no white friends, right? And there's no whites essentially in the school, so there's no modeling, there's no imitation, there's no a sense of of uh, getting beyond that distrust so that they don't ever see the parents interacting positively with whites, all they do is get home and and hear how badly they've been treated, which is probably the reality of that person's life. How does that person then who's six, eight years old build strong bonds when they go into a school with white teachers, white principals, and uh, the majority of kids being white? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And rather, though, let me just finish this one thought, because Mm -hmm. it it is a controversial part of the book, if you wish. How about if that parent had white friends?
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And But still did not diminish it the fact that they should be proud of being black so that they're not, you know, what's it called, the, um, you know, acting white, that there's not going to be any. You can still be successful and and do well in school, but that doesn't mean you're any less black. In fact, that's what it is to be proud and to be black is to be successful by taking these challenges on and showing folks that they 're wrong, if you have a parent that essentially is acknowledging that the insti- that the institutions that these kids are going into are racist and teaching them and making them having what the book describes as a a strong sense of black consciousness, a critical black consciousness that this is the fault of whites, and don 't you internalize this as being problematic for yourself you 're not the problem it 's how you 're being treated, and i 'm going to teach you how to respond to people who treat you worse than you should be treated, that's the type of parent that's going to generate a kid despite all the injuries that they're going to suffer, as we described with these Carver kids that have been rolled up by on the by the police, they can cope with that. Where with some that have all these other kinds of circumstances and a parent that's just saying these white blue-eyed devils are, you know, they're no good, you can't trust them, they're up, you know, all they're going to do is screw you in the long run. Those kids, what's going to happen to those kids? And finally, what we argue is that 20% of parents don't even engage in any form of racial socialization, and what we argue is that those are the kids that are most at risk because those are the kids that are going to create a black identity Largely from kids that have already been disidentified from the schools hanging out on the streets and what that black identity is going to be formed Essentially integrating themselves within peer groups that are if you wish defined by their mistrust of white-dominated institutions
2: mm-hmm. let me respond just okay. very briefly as uh, Not only a, a, an interviewer, but basically in my role as um a professor of african-american studies um and being intensely and immensely um, uh, interested in in your book what you've just posited um i i agree with you um, wholeheartedly but the one thing that the parents cannot do is eliminate um alone the challenges that they can prepare the children to cope with, and I think that is a fundamental problem that the challenges remain. The other thing is that the coping strategies um uh, that that those that the children will develop um themselves lead to maybe not offending but to certain um let's say physiological factors that we talked about at the beginning. So, you know, you said that African Americans have a shorter life expectancy, et cetera, and that is across the board, not um just in the underclass, but uh middle class African Americans as well. And my argument is that parents and middle class African Americans who socialize um their children Uh, And and argue uh, critics who try to socialize uh, readers, the the masses into um, an American society that asks them to uh, go twice, do twice as much work to get half as far or to um, deal, develop coping strategies to deal with um, structural and everyday uh, racism uh, without challenging the system of oppression, without challenging those very uh, the, the the structures that uh remain in place it's a it's it's also um uh a half full cup i think uh to use your um analogy
0: yeah i mean it uh, that's what i when i said develop a critical black consciousness i mean it the by the way you know in terms of the challenging the system what we argue in the book it it in the most effective coping strategy or let, let's start out with the worst is what's called in the literature and there's not a tremendous amount of literature on this topic once again surprisingly but the, the one of the worst strategies is avoidance coping and we argue once again for the gender differences that black men are particularly vulnerable to engaging in avoidance coping So that means swallowing if you wish
3: mm-hmm.
0: you know simply and so here you are um, in a you as a faculty person, you go into a room and it's mostly faculty, and and you may be slightly underdressed, but I would probably argue that you engage in what's called John Henryism, and John Henryism, you know, based upon the character, is exactly what you described: is that you have to do twice as much to get hmm. the acknowledgement as what you perceive a white person's getting, mm-hmm. and that kills you, right? That here you are basically. You know, going into this room and you feel even more pressure than the white faculty in there to prove that you are worthy of being in that room.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you know, Gates talked about how he used to, he wore a tie every time he flew. So this John Henryism is just as debilitating as, um, if you wish, the avoidance coping. You're between a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. go into that faculty room. And someone asks you, "Well, can you get me a glass of water, please?" Right? It's a microaggression. It was inadvertent. Uh, the person didn't, you know, uh, for whatever reason. But it's racist, and you—that's uh, shattering, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then you're compelled, like a rat on the wheel, to overcompensate, overcompensate, and, and of course, then you die at a younger age. So, but the avoidance coping—I don't, I, I, you know—if you want. You're less likely to offend if you're a John Henry than you are what I'm going to describe now. But the consequences health-wise are probably nearly equal. Mm -hmm. So in the reverse of that, uh, avoidance coping. Now, this guy has said something racist to you, okay? Now, you are put in on the spot. Now, the black critical consciousness is going to confront that person. But I argue we argue in the book that you as a black man are constrained in your ability to confront because why any display of anger publicly by a black man instantly reaffirms the negative stereotype that the majority of whites in that room have about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, he can't handle himself. Uh, so what do you end up doing in that situation is you swallow and swallowing is rumination And swallowing essentially is taking all those emotions and end up internalizing them and potentially problematizing you as being the problem.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Right? And so then you walk out of that room and you're shattered. You haven't done anything with it. You don't know what to do with it. Us guys, we don't really seek social support, which we argue is what women are more capable of doing than we are. You don't go to church, and the church has always been the, the, the uh, center of teaching resiliency in the black community. You, you, where do you go with all that? Mm-hmm. And so do you drink more? Uh, do you go home and hit the dog? You know, uh, where what a healthy form, and once again, I believe that black men are more hindered in their ability to do this, is to confront that guy and say, you know, what you just said is really inappropriate. And um, I don't appreciate what you said. In fact, I interpreted that as a racist remark. I'm a full professor at this university and it's wrong for you to assume because I'm black that I'm a waiter and mm-hmm. then just move on. And now the stinks on who? Not you. You're not in turn. You may be upset and you know, feeling frazzled. When you walk out of that room, your pride's intact mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. you're black and you're proud you've asserted a healthy boundary you're less likely to offend
3: mm-hmm.
0: you're less likely to go back into your
3: office and <laughs> take the
0: office supplies right. through this institution as soon as they think I'm a waiter mm-hmm. and so what we argue is that that coping strategy of being assertive is a parental though not entirely responsibility and in fighting these injustices at the at the moment of their occurrence is transformative. Mm-hmm. Of course, it doesn't have anything to do with the systemic components of it, but we aren't explaining. We're only explaining why some blacks and other blacks don't mm-hmm. offend or do offend. And I could almost guarantee you that if you had that capability of being assertive and laying out a healthy black. Co- Critical consciousness and getting yourself out of that situation with your pride intact your black pride intact that's a healthy person that person in our book is much less likely to offend than the one who sits there and swallows the anger and humiliation doesn't do anything with it and ends up going home and using drugs excessively drinking or going home and pilfering office supplies because they're so pissed off at how they were treated. Mm-hmm.
2: That's a. I, I think that's brilliant, and thank you for um, uh, teasing that out. Um, I also think that one of the things that can be done is for everybody to read this book. <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's an excellent book, and I think that um, uh, uh, deve- part of developing a, a critical black consciousness is. You know, reading works by um uh by academics who are interested in these topics and that it's for everybody, um, you know, regardless of race, regardless of class, that we should be engaged in these conversations and this in this uh learning. Can right. you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Yeah, I, I I'm working on two papers right now. Um just last night I uh helped I, I'm uh working with two junior faculty And one of them is the title of the paper, Working in an Emotional Ghetto. And it's really quite interesting. She surveyed, uh, I'll just briefly tell you, that she surveyed, uh, I think, like a couple thousand Tennessee workers in the public sector, state workers. And what we're finding is that uh, African-Americans report less job satisfaction than whites. And we're trying to essentially say that the reason why blacks end up having less satisfaction with their work, even though, the, the public sector is the one sector that blacks actually are overrepresented in terms of work it, but they, yet there's a darker side a, you know a bleaker underside to all this is that they have um they don't get the same level of uh, capacity to express themselves emotionally at work mm. once again the anger issue particularly black men and secondly so once again if you're offended at work do you say anything okay and the answer is if you're healthy you do if you're unhealthy if you wish you don't and then what we also say see is that african-american workers report less emotional support from their coworkers. so that the term that I'm going to use to characterize that is working in an emotional ghetto
3: mm-hmm.
0: and how that translates into the less the likelihood of you leaving that job looking for other work or feeling less satisfied And then the other paper that we're looking at, uh, which is really timely given what happened in Norway, is I'm working with a fellow named Graham Uzi and we're looking cross-nationally throughout Europe and the likelihood, the the variables that we have is the percent of ethnic factualization. That is, uh, you know, all these countries are having a large immigrant population now. And then we're looking at the degree to which they are supporting punitive policies. you know, how much the individuals in the country wanted to harshly punish crime and that we're saying that the percent ethnic factionalization in a country translates into greater likelihood of endorsing a mass incarceration type of policy because it enhances the level of intolerance towards outgroups within uh, the country itself. So what we're essentially uh, validating is that the link between intolerance Uh, towards out-groups, minority groups, and uh, people endorsing punitive um, attitudes is a cultural universal.
2: Wow. Can't wait to read it. (laughs) Thank you so much uh, for joining us on New Books in African American Studies. I love the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you very much. We've been listening to
1: James Univer discuss his new book, A Theory of African American Offending, Race, Racism, and Crime, published by Rutledge 2011. James Univer co-authored this book with Sean L. Gabadon. As you've heard, this book is necessary reading for both undergraduate and graduate students, as well as the general public and criminologists, all who are interested in why African Americans offend. I hope you'll read this book.